0: Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in Spiritual Matters, and thanks for joining us today. My name's Ethan Longhenry, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Perhaps at some point in your life you've wondered, Who am I? Why am I here? These are the kind of questions that have pressed strongly into human minds ever since we've been able to ask those questions. And it's good for us to wonder, what is life all about? If you have much experience with Christianity... You probably know that the answer for Christians is that we're to become one with God as God is one in himself, and that way we also can be one with one another. The story has been told many times. God has made us in the image of God. He wants to maintain relationship with us, his offspring. Genesis 1 and Acts 17. But we have strayed from the ways of God, and now we're subject to sin and death. But thanks be to God that through Jesus, he has reconciled us back to him through the sacrifice that he offered on the cross in Romans 3 and 5. So we find reconciliation with God in Christ and also the right good and healthy way to live and also a call to resistance against the forces of darkness over the present age and the ability to have true reconciliation with our fellow man in Galatians 5, Ephesians 2, 4, and 6 it's in Christ that we have the hope of resurrection eternal life in the presence of God in Philippians 3 and at the end of Revelation 21 and 22 this is the story we say over and over again especially for Christians we may know these things but do we live like it? has the knowledge we've gained of these things penetrated the heart and the actions? Because it's very easy to give lip service to what we know is true from what God has made known in Scripture, but in our actual life, and our actual practice, we end up capitulating to alternative meanings for life. Now, this really shouldn't be too surprising to us, because the pull toward worldly ways of thinking is very great, and a lot of people remain very wedded to them. And so, in order to try to exhort one another toward relational unity with God and one another, we do well to expose these various purposes to life that are made ultimate in the world, that have been offered as substitutes to the story that we've mentioned. And let's look at, perhaps, what has proven to be the all-paramount purpose. Me. Is life all about me? Because there's probably very few things that identify the modern world more than our preoccupation with the individual and the goal to eliminate any kind of structural or systemic hindrance to his or her empowerment now let's be honest in the ancient world it's not like there was no concern for the individual but the focus was always on an individual as part of his or her greater community we can see this in israel we can look in the law and there's in leviticus there's all kinds of commands about individual behavior and the things that individuals should be doing and the individuals do make up the covenant people of god but A lot is also stated about their communal actions, their communal guilt. So even if one person or two people did something, guilt could come on the entire community and the communal consequences that come from uh, disobedience. It's a savage irony, perhaps, but it's Protestant Christianity and its esteem of the valuation of each individual person and his or her conscience before God that really led to a greater emphasis in the West on the individual. And this has grown greater ever since, and it culminates in, in the Enlightenment, the idea that, okay, reason's the ultimate arbiter, sure, but that we as humans can assess the reasonability of any given claim or idea, any of us. It's in this environment, in the Enlightenment, thanks to John Locke, that we get this idea that people should have a voice in their own governments. Uh, these theories that were developed would provide the basis of the idea that we have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as recorded in the Declaration of Independence. And throughout its existence, American cultural attitudes have glorified the individual, from the patriot who resisted the British tyranny to the self-made man in the frontier, building a farm, or the self-made man in business. And yet, as the individual becomes ascendant, the community and its norms decline. Because there's always a trade-off between the individual and community. If one uh, has its purposes advanced, the other, by necessity, is going to lose out. And so we, in in America, generally think pretty highly uh, of the overthrow of the cloud of the Catholic Church and the monarchies of Europe that had developed in the medieval and early uh, modern world. And it's true that in many respects it did prove oppressive. But now as we have exalted the individual in his or her will and purpose over all things, uh, communal obligations and norms have suffered. And that is why cohesive community in America has declined consistently as long as it's existed. People move in and out based on opportunity. People have less and less in common, except for maybe living near each other. And people have less loyalty to institutions because it's everything's so transient. In a lot of ways, today we're just reaping what we've sown for generations in terms of this rampant individualism. And it's very much affecting everything that we see around us. So much of what is you know, goes on the culture war, so to speak, in politics revolve around the individual's right versus communal norms or needs. So an example with the pro-choice movement, there's an emphasis there on personal autonomy, considering the perpetuation of pregnancy, the choice of the mother. The pro-life movement, when not emphasizing the right of the unborn, emphasizes communal norms of the valuation of life and to sublimate perhaps the individual woman's right for the benefit of her child. Uh, this whole existence the uh, the debate right now on gender identity derives from this philosophy that suggests that uh, gender is a social construct and therefore something we can choose uh, which gender if any we'd like to reflect we see the uh, advancement of libertarianism which in in vaunts the individual's right to choose over any sort of governmental interference thinking about liberty almost entirely in terms of autonomy of the individual as opposed to maybe group interests Uh, and so, for instance, the healthcare debate—the uh, issue revolved around the good of the or the choice of the individual versus the needs of the many. Uh, same is true about the safety net entitlement programs, uh, gun control versus gun rights. All these different uh, issues all revolve around these same concepts. And the climate of morality around us that we that so many of us lament is a direct result of rampant individual. Uh, what shared values do we have anymore to to judge what is right or wrong? And that's why what's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. What's right for me is right for me. The idea of relativism. uh, Because the individual is now the greatest priority, and who is to say that one individual's view is actually better than another's? And the important thing to know about this is, despite the way it gets framed, it's not left versus right. It's not Christian versus unbeliever. In the arena today, everybody on some issues wants to uphold the rights of the individual over communal norms, and everybody on other issues wants to uphold uh, communal value uh, versus individual uh, autonomy and liberty. What's so interesting is that so many times the way this goes down it's that the individualist notions on both sides end up getting highly emphasized. Those are the ones that actually make progress. And so in some respects we get uh, uh, the worst of all worlds in that way. And And let's face it, our communal life is abysmal. People barely know their neighbors anymore. They don't feel any loyalty to community institutions, and they generally live isolated, self absorbed lives pursuing their individual empowerment. This is just an example that I've personally been chewing on. How would you attempt to convince somebody that it's a good idea to have children? Back in the day, so to speak, it wasn't even a question, right? Uh, people enjoyed the process a little bit too much without the ability to hinder conception, and so they had children. And children, as we can see in Psalm 127, 3-5, through five, were considered as blessings. If nothing else, provide labor. And in Matthew 15, we can see to honor your father and mother means that they would provide support in their old, in their old age. Um, so, but now we have birth control. We've got social security, and we don't have a cultural expectation for children to provide for parents. Uh, anybody who's been a parent will tell you that parenting is a transformative, humbling experience, because an, another being is entirely dependent upon you, and you willingly serve them and devote yourself to their advancement. And so by its very definition, to have a child is to sublimate yourself and what you, he or, you, you might want out of life for the benefit of another. Now sure, a lot of people have children still try to live for themselves, and hey, with varying uh, ability to be successful based on privilege and support systems. But a lot of people have decided not to have children so they can advance their careers and pursue self-fulfillment. And considering the spirit of our age in in which children are taught in school that they can be whatever they want to be and they pursue their dreams no matter what, how can you go about persuading a person who sees very clearly that having a child means I've, I've got to set aside my goals in life to in many respects, so that this child can grow and be nourished, um, and that it's going to be a very transforming experience, that, that they should do that when they've been told, hey, they, they should go to live for their self-fulfillment. And it's very hard to make an argument, isn't it? And that just shows how the pendulum has swung. About as far as it possibly can toward the the realm of the individual against that of the community. So what are you supposed to say about these things? Well, we need to first understand how God has made us. And God has made us as social animals, but with distinct personality and skills. And this is something we see very powerfully tested in Scripture. Uh, We've said uh, in Genesis 1, man has been made in the image of God. And we know that John 17, 20, the way that John Jesus puts it is that may the, 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 we may be one as uh, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, that they are one. The fancy pants term for that is perichoretic relational unity. So God is three persons, one God, their oneness is not hindering their personality, but their personality is not lost in oneness. Uh, We can see this concept in marriage. Matthew 19, the two become one flesh. They're no longer two but one, but yet they remain two distinct individuals. Uh, furthermore, we see in Matthew 25, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4, uh, the people have different abilities and different levels of abilities. You know, Matthew 25, we have the five-talent servant, the two-talent servant, the one-talent servant. Yes, they're money that they're given, but given according to their abilities. Um, and the whole idea of the church as a body means that there's different parts that are able to do different things. And, of course, this is a, a phenomenon that's very highly observable. Because we want to express ourselves as individuals, right? We all want to be individual, yet we also want to be with other people. We also want to fit into some group or another. And even we say, hey, I'm an outcast. Well, have you noticed how outcasts tend to fit a particular group of people with a predictable set of characteristics in and of themselves? Uh, Completely antisocial people in general, like, for instance, the Unabomber, For those who may remember him, a guy who lived out in the woods and issued all contact with people and sent bombs to universities, uh, that's kind of psychopathic tendencies that are involved. Not all the time, and we're not saying that as an attempt to lack compassion or be judgmental, as much to show, really, that this is the exception that proves the rule. Uh, yeah, you can point to some people who truly want nothing to do with their fellow man and want to truly go their own individual way, and that we call them psychopaths for a reason because they don't really interact with other people. We we see that as a problem. We see that as a difficulty uh, that, that needs to be addressed somehow. So humans are both individuals, and they want to be part of a group greater than themselves. And so a person can, in general, work to the benefit of the whole to the detriment of him herself or they can work to his or her own benefit to the detriment of the whole. Very rarely is anybody able to try to make both work, where they benefit both themselves and the group. Like we said about children, either you will suffer the loss of a level of personal advancement to serve your children, or neglect your children to advance yourself. It's almost impossible to benefit both yourself and children well together. The needs of family and friends and associates, other community members, will at some point get in the way of our personal advancement or fulfillment. And so human life takes place in this tension between these two elements of mankind, the individual and the community. And it's really a spectrum. And there's kind of the extremist and never recognized uh, levels of all community and no individualism on one side, and no community, all individualism on the other side. Now, sure, there have been experiments attempting to manifest the extremes, but there's a reason they've never come to fruition. And all cultures and societies fall somewhere on this spectrum, often very uncomfortably. And as we've attested, most trends in Western culture have moved more toward the individual side than the community side of the spectrum. And that has been a reaction over the suffocation which many individuals felt under some of the communal values and institutions of the past. But... We cannot abandon all community or communal institutions without harming ourselves greatly because we were not made to be alone. Don't buy into the lie. We are not self-made people. Parents and teachers, bosses, customers have invested in us and have given of themselves so we could get to the point that we are. We're not just more individualistic, are we? We're also more isolated than ever, alienated than ever, depressed and anxious than ever. And why is that? Well, who can we really depend upon? Even investment with others is done for an eye for personal gain or aggrandizement. How do I benefit from being your friend? It's become almost a transactional nature. What would happen in an emergency? What would happen if you found yourself stuck in a natural disaster with the people around you? What would you do? Huh? The fraying of community has led to a general indifference, if not outright hostility, toward our fellow man. They're no longer people with whom we jointly participate in life. They're hindrances. Very literally, sometimes, if you're in traffic, they're all hindrances. You can't get to where you want to go because all these cars are in the way, or these people are in the way. People in line right at the store. Uh, they're they're literally h- people we just look we think they're no, we just want to get them all out of our way, right? But again, think about where that's coming from. What does that mean about how we look at our fellow man? And so, yes, this movement toward individualism so deeply is problematic. Now, I don't want anybody to be deceived. God's purpose is not to make anybody into a robot or to lose their distinctiveness as a person. Interestingly, uh, despite uh, common viewpoints, the Bible doesn't ever really teach complete selflessness. In fact, throughout the text, there is a presumption, a base presumption, that you're going to take care of yourself. So in Philippians 2 and verse 4, Paul will say, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we rightly emphasize, he said, look look toward the interests of others. But notice how he said that. Not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. So that is, not only, but also means that the first is there. It's true, it's valid, but it's not the exclusive. There's also this other thing you need to be concerned about. And so we are to look toward our own interests. That's what Paul's telling us there. In Ephesians 5.29, Paul takes this as self-evident as a way of explaining something. He says, uh, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nurses and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. And his whole point is that husbands are to treat their wives like they treat their own bodies uh, in the previous verses. And so he takes it just as evident No one hated his own flesh. We take care of it. We provide for our basic needs. So, God expects you to take care of basic needs, and God has made us as unique individuals. Look, individuality is not a bug, but part of the design. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 12-28, the whole idea of the church as a body is all these different parts uh, have their individual function and also work together. So those body parts need to have individual functions. And each person who makes up the body of Christ, and all people in general, have unique skills and experiences. And these differences are to be celebrated and honored. They're not to be despised. In fact, a lot of times you can get down and converse with people and learn about their experience, learn uh, their story. Uh, Fascinating. And it breaks down a lot of barriers. And you you learn that everybody's got something to offer. Everybody's got something that's uh, special about them. But the Bible is very clear. In the last days, those dangerous times coming where people uh, are going to do all these things, they're going to be lovers of self. 2 Timothy 2 3 2.3. They're not going to work toward the benefit of others as much as their own benefit or aggrandizement. We're to serve others and to share in the community of the people of God in Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul will just exclaim it. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're to glorify God in our bodies. And we talk about those individual passages. We talked about in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, the distinctiveness. Sure, each part has its distinctiveness, but it works together as part of a whole. And it works to the benefit and the aggrandizement of the whole. Even in the Philippines too, not you know, getting that back in its harmony. Not only your own interest, but also the interests of others, and how that's going to work together, and and what you're going to do when they conflict. Uh, same with Ephesians five, the whole setup there about is about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And every time we talk about what you've been given as unique individuals, something like in First Peter four, what use the gifts God has given you. To serve others, to serve one another. And so, as bodies have unique parts doing unique tasks, not only for their own sake, but the sake of the whole, Christians are to take what God has given them and to use them to his glory and to benefit his or her fellow Christians, and all men as we have opportunity. Galatians first Peter four, ten. And even the whole topic of salvation has wrapped up in this tension, both in scripture and our society. And salvation in Christ, unfortunately, in the eyes of many, just become very Americanized. It's almost impossible uh, to, to see it as a collective thing a lot of times, because it's everywhere envisioned as a personal relationship between a person, his or her God. The whole sinner's prayer revival factory is predicated on that rapid individualism. You hear the message, you make your response to Christ, nobody even has to necessarily know about it. You write it down, maybe let somebody else know. If we have a consumeristic mindset, uh, like we have in our culture, not only now can we explain modern worship trends, so to speak, but why people think of salvation as a commodity that they can obtain and use and then just continue on as they were before. Now, it's true, and I don't want to make it you know, otherwise, that we as God's purpose is for each and every individual to come to God in Christ, to be saved based on their individual faith and trust in God. This is something that is emphasized uh, throughout, uh, that First 1 Timothy 1.15, 2.4, God wants all to be saved, God, uh, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom Paul is the foremost, um, that we must have our individual faith, uh, the righteous will be saved by his faith, in Habakkuk 2.4, Paul will quote in Romans 1.17, uh, but God's purpose never has ended with the individual. He or she has become one with fellow believers as they have become one with God in Christ. He or she must be connected to Jesus as the vine in John 15. Um, and Jesus and fellow believers are the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3 and 12. Christ has redeemed his bride, the church, which will be glorified and which will endure forever in Revelation 21 and 22. And within the body of Christ, there's an expectation of individual efforts and individual realms. You know, we have to do our thing in our daily life. But there's also the expectation, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4, uh, of encouragement, sustenance, and development of one another, serving one another. So yes, salvation has an individual component, but it has collective purposes. And so... Paul says in Philippians 2 if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from rivalry or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also in the interests of others and he continues on with this idea of the, the mind of Christ that we're have, supposed to have within us uh, of, of great humbling uh, so God can exalt us uh, this is all antithetical to a focus on the self-promotion and aggrandizement of ourselves have you been a part of a church or any group of people where a few or perhaps even most of his members were convinced of their own excellence and went their own way now sure those groups may have a collective of people they may share certain ideas but there's no real cohesion in that group a group that looks like that or does those things is headed for factionalism and division until there's a general repentance and a desire to find ways of working together. Because working together in a community by its very nature requires compromise. It's going to mean that some people or almost everybody is going to be uncomfortable at times. And a willingness for us to take our own opinions and viewpoints and sublimate them, put them under uh, what is better for others or the whole. And it goes back to a core fundamental premise in relationships. You're either right or you're in a relationship. And so that that it tells you everything you need to know about the condition of a lot of, uh, of Christianity in America when you see how many times churches will divide over the smallest things. And they're dividing over those things because people aren't working together. They insist on their own way because that's what they're used to having. And they just can't have it otherwise. And so that's the rampant individualism that's in our society. And if it's in our society, it's a very great danger for it to come into the church. And there's this tension that exists between the individual and community and its needs and values. The Christian life cannot be all about me. Yes, I'm supposed to take care of my personal needs and to take care of myself. But to what end would I exalt myself as an individual in my unique characteristics? Yes, God has made me a unique person. He made you a unique person. We have our individual skills and experience that's well and good. But if I want to thrive, I need to be part of something greater than myself, greater whole the body of Christ. Where i can serve in my capacities i can be connected to god and christ for nourishment and sustenance connected to my fellow members in the body of christ for encouragement and edification look this rampant individualism sold by our culture is a lie you can't be anything you want you do well to use what you have to glorify god serve others and to share in community Single Maya devotion to self-advancement doesn't lead to self-fulfillment. It leads to greater emptiness. As you learn that, yeah, you can get ahead without developing relationships, but that's very miserably lonely. You can't be self-made. You are the product of the influences of others who have served you in various capacities. You are not an island. You live among others and order to share in life with others. But you are unique and special, just like everybody else. True life can only be found in the context of encouraging relationships. If we're going to really enjoy life and truly live, we need to, people with whom to enjoy it. Hey, Look, no one likes that succubus who draws strength and energy from others without giving in turn. True relationships must be reciprocal. They must involve giving and taking. And it's only within a relative comfort of a healthy support system can any individual truly thrive. And the reason that thriving can exist is because we can depend upon others. If we can depend upon others, it means others have invested in us and are willing to provide for us in various ways and times that we need it and have the confidence that we will do the same. And that's how we get back to God's purposes for you and for me in Christ. Because God has made each of us to be a unique mixture of skills and experiences. God has given us the ability to find redemption in Jesus. We're not saved as a class or because of group membership, but because we've developed a trusting relationship with God in Christ. That we're to be in God as God is in us, to have that relational unity in Christ in John 15 and John 17. This life-giving connection that we have with God doesn't exist in its isolation. It is within the context of the body of Christ, with fellow believers in reciprocally encouraging and edifying association with them, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. If that's going to work and happen, it's because we're giving of ourselves. We're going to have to be considerate of others. We may have to even lay down our lives in 1 John 3.16. But in Christ, we can become all God made us to be, to find true satisfaction in life and relational unity with God and his people if only we're willing to suffer that loss of some of our concepts of self, self-advancement and, what's re- and self-fulfillment in order to truly find fulfillment in all that we're really seeking by serving others and being encouraged in turn as part of the body of Christ. And so we encourage everyone to consider themselves and how they can better encourage one another in the body of Christ and to live for God in Christ and not make everything about me. I'm so glad again that you've joined us. And if you've been benefited by this and you think others have benefited, we encourage you to please share it on social media. Let people know about it. Uh, if we can be of service, if you'd like to talk some more about things we talked about in this lesson, talk about other topics, if you have a prayer request. Uh, If you'd like to meet with us, uh, come find out more about us at venicechurchorchrist.org. We're also on various forms of social media. And if I can be of any service, please visit me at my website, deferbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.